Welcome to the Empowered Investor Podcast. Have you ever felt overwhelmed by the sheer volume of choices and voices telling you how to plan or invest for your future? With his straightforward approach, host Keith Matthews of Tulette Matthews and Associates cuts through the noise to help you create a winning action plan for you and your family. The decision-making framework discussed in this show can transform you and your investment experiences and will increase your odds of becoming financially secure. Learn more and subscribe today at tma-invest.com. Welcome to The Empowered Investor. My name is Keith Matthews, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Ruben Antoine. Welcome, Ruben. Thank you, Keith. I'm really excited right now for this show. Yeah, today's show is a special one. We're going to have our very first guest. So up to now, we've been walking through the story of The Empowered Investor. And in today's episode, we have a wonderful guest by the name of Jerry Rocky. Ruben, tell us a little bit about Jerry's background, and then we'll get ready to start the show. Yes, Jerry is a financial expert and ETF pioneer. So right now, he's a retired senior executive and corporate director with experience in investment management, environmental finance, and financial regulation and corporate governance. So as you know, Kit, in the last few shows, we spoke a lot about ETFs, exchange-traded funds, which are investment vehicles accessible to all investors because anyone can buy an ETF directly from the stock market. And those investment vehicles give the investors access to a diversified pool of investing. And it's really cheap and it's very effective. So we are a big fan of ETFs. What is amazing about our guest, Jerry Rocky is that he was the CEO, the chief executive officer of Barclays Global Investors Canada from 1997 to 2005. So Barclays Global Investors Canada became BlackRock after BlackRock acquired that company. And they also acquired the whole ETF suit that are well known, the iShares suit that right now they are in an alliance with RBC. So Jerry Waki was instrumental in the ETF and the progression because he developed with his team the whole iShares ETF product line back then. And he also launched with his team the world first bond ETF. So we are very excited to have him on the show right now. And one thing I have to mention as well is that Jerry was the director and chair of IROC. IROC is the Investment Regulatory Association overseeing close to 30,000 investment advisors across Canada. So like I said, he's a pioneer and we are really privileged to have him as a guest on our podcast today. Yeah. The only thing I would add to that is when Jerry Rocky was in charge of the leadership at BGI, BGI was the organization who pretty much launched exchange-traded funds through the iShare family around the world. We all use exchange-traded funds or many investors are adopting and embracing them, but they had to start somewhere. Somebody had to innovate, organizations had to create. And take some risk as well, take some risk because it was Absolutely. Not, uh, yeah. yeah, take huge risk. So Jerry was a real true pioneer in this front and we're really excited to have him on today's show. Welcome Jerry to the Empowered Investor Podcast. I'm delighted to be here, Keith and Ruben. Jerry, you and I have known each other for close to 20 years now, going back to those early ETF launch days. And the majority of today's show is going to be discussing that really fascinating and innovative period where you're such a leader at BGI. But before BGI, what were you doing 
Where were you working? What were your responsibilities? And how did that journey lead to BGI? Well, thanks, Keith. I was working for Imperial Oil right before I joined BGI. I'd worked for Imperial Oil in Canada and Exxon in the U.S. for 16 years and really a wide variety of financial roles. I'm, in a way, to ask me what was I doing, it changed every year or two in my general management rotation. I kept changing jobs frequently. Right before I joined, I was the assistant controller for financial reporting. I spent most of my time in the capital markets and treasury and corporate finance areas, including managing the pension fund for Imperial Oil from 1992 to 1994. You know, in investment jargon, that's on the buy side. The buy side being the investment management side of the industry. Yes, absolutely. The side where you get to say no and aren't seeking yes. And then you made the switch. What made you consider going over to BGI, which was Barclays Global Investors? Because they're now on the sell side, they're manufacturing investment solutions. Yes. Well, I'd gotten to know the BGI people, Barclays Global Investors, as you pointed out, now BlackRock Global Investors. Uh, when I managed the Imperial Oil Pension Fund, they were one of the investment managers we used, and I'd grown to admire, respect, and like them. I mean, they actively sought out candid feedback. They weren't defensive about anything. They shared a lot of knowledge. And in my time at the pension fund, I always thought I really liked investing. I grew to realize I loved investing. And my view is to be good at investing, you must love the investment process and everything that goes with it. And if you love the investment process, as I did, well, you should consider investments as a career if you can. So as I said, I loved investing. I loved solving pension fund problems. A general financial experience from Imperial and Exxon. I literally did every job, almost every job that could report to a CFO. Um, but I wanted to lead more. I wanted to have that revenue responsibility of seeking out someone's yes to hire us, to create more, to do all of that in an area where I felt I had strong aptitude and skills. Your move from Imperial Oil to BGI was a big one because back then in the late 90s, BGI was a pretty major player in the Canadian institutional marketplace, were they not? I think the Canadian institutional marketplace was small then and it wasn't that large. It was actually kind of subscale, especially given that it did a lot of indexing. So one of our issues was we needed to rapidly move it to scale. When I joined, I was a 17th employee and we had a few billion dollars in assets under management, but we really, for the type of investing it did, it needed to grow rapidly. So take us back to the late 90s here. BGI was an institutional money manager, and they were considering getting into the ETF space. What was the vision, and what were the leaders in BGI thinking when they said, let's go after the ETF world? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's really funny. I joined BGI in 97. Actually, in 96, I started the process. I knew I wanted to leave Imperial and go to a money manager, preferably BGI. And I told them that in 96. They had told me that they were thinking of getting into ETFs, which I thought was great. And we'll talk about this later. That's actually when I had been thinking about a bond ETF offering. But at the time, back in the late 90s, BGI had no mutual fund offering. And mutual fund growth in the US was really strong, in part from U.S. defined contribution growth, which is a much bigger part of the market than defined contribution is in Canada. 
it would have been expensive for BGI to catch up in mutual funds or to buy a mutual fund company. It was like the train had left the station and they had these great aspirations. ETS, however, were an underdeveloped area that we felt could be a better type of mutual fund and allow BGI to make up for lost time. So that was actually the initial concept. The short-term objectives for BGI in terms of ETFs were to establish ourselves as market leaders and change the ETF game. The few ETFs outstanding at the time, there really weren't that many, provided really little information to investors or assistance to advisors. It was just there and you actually came to buy them or you didn't. We wanted to make it easier to use ETFs in a smart way. We provided lots of data, including historical data and extra tools for advisors to help them advise their clients on how to use them. So our near-term goal is to establish that franchise as a smarter way of doing ETFs. We wanted to meet some sales and revenue targets. Well, actually wanted is the wrong word. We needed to meet certain sales and revenue targets. Otherwise, <laughs> this great gamble, there was a small group of us globally that were wanted we'd be out of a job if this didn't work. So we needed to meet certain revenue and profit goals. For the benefit of the listeners, we all just assume that ETFs have been around forever, but they haven't. And prior to your leadership at BGI, what investors had access to were these units called participation units. There were a couple on the TSX, Jerry, and you remember those very well, the tips and the hips. And then there was the spider in the United States and the mid cap, maybe the webs. And I believe that was kind of the series of ETFs. But then they were all run by the stock exchanges. How did that all work? They were run by exchanges and then custodians at the same time. They were. I mean, Tips and Hips were run by the Toronto Stock Exchange. And later in their existence, before we folded them into iShares, and that's another story, the Toronto Stock Exchange outsourced the management, which really wasn't, it's really an index mandate. And they had hired State Street to do that. In the US, State Street managed the spiders, SPY, and I think that was you know, similar to TIPS. So fees were low and they didn't do a lot in terms of providing information. The webs were country ETF funds on different countries overseas, and they were run by Morgan Stanley, the broker. Then there were certain difficulties with their growth because of the fact that they were also part of the MSCI family. So I'd mentioned some of our near-term goals. Well, one of the other near-term goals was we launched equity ETFs on index families from S&P, Dow Jones, Russell, and also MSCI by taking over the web's portfolios. We signed some time-limited exclusive deals with these index providers where they couldn't license their indices to other firms for several years. And we wanted to make each index provider successful. We want to make the most of our exclusive period, but we wanted each one of them not just to experience success, but to feel like if they had another index to license, that their best place to go to is BGI, that we would wind up paying them the most amount because we would expand the assets more quickly than other competitors could. So not only were we trying to establish a franchise with investors, we're trying to establish a franchise with index providers. It's really a neat three or four way dimensional problem here. And again, as you pointed out, we had very few ETFs at the time. The ETF idea, everyone thinks now was a slam dunk. It was destined to succeed. There was no such confidence at the time. It was a real gamble. This is amazing, Jerry. You just talk about equity ETF, but you mentioned earlier also about the bond ETFs. So you led the group that created the very first bond 
ETF in Canada, but in the world, actually. So is this because you saw an opportunity and what obstacle did you face, if you have any? We faced many obstacles. And it's a great story. <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, I think for me, even when I had left the pension fund area of Imperial, I kept thinking about investing. Personally, I owned Tips and Hips, the first two Canadian ETFs. And back in 92, 93, there was a recession and there were a lot of corporate bonds that had previously been rated investment grade that then failed. So actually back in the early 90s, I'd always thought, Boy, for a retail investor, even for an institutional investor, getting diversified access to corporate credit would be really great. So yeah. I'd actually been thinking about a corporate bond ETF for some time. And when I started interviewing with BGI in 96, and BGI took a long time to interview people for jobs. It took almost a year of interviews before they hired me. I would frequently mention this idea for bond ETFs and I'm not sure anyone knew what I was talking about, but anyway, I mentioned it in every interview. So I had this idea that we really wanted to create bond ETS. Once we launched XIU, we took over the tips and hips and folded them in. That was challenged by State Street. We actually had a proxy battle, the world's first and only ever ETF proxy battle. We won it, thank God. <laughs> and promptly after that, equities fell out of bed in Canada because Nortel, which had been 40% of the index, collapsed, and indexing was a bad word. It was hard to sell equity ETFs. We're working on sector ETFs, but we had this window of opportunity on bonds. We went for it. BGI headquarters wasn't that keen on bonds at the time, so we needed to do it you know, by moving budget monies around because it really wasn't approved by them that we would do it. <laughs> but we were determined this is a great thing for investors. We wanted to do it. And we did it, and we just passed the 20th anniversary. So we wanted to launch a bond index ETF. As your listeners, I no doubt, are aware, bond indices are you know groups of you know all the bonds outstanding in a country, maybe corporate versus government, and it's a convenient way of managing a fund, as you know. So we tried to get a license from a bond index provider, and the only one game in town at the time was Scotia, and they wanted to launch their own ETFs. They wouldn't give us a license. We didn't want to launch with a non-brand name index because there was really only one that was recognized in Canada. So our response was this really quirky thing. We launched two ETFs, one based on a five-year Government of Canada bond, the other one on a 10-year Government of Canada bond, both based on single bonds. We'd roll those bonds as new five and 10-year bonds came available. But we wanted to establish the concept and what it allowed us to do was to capture the entire bond indexing space. Bond index, mutual funds stopped growing as soon as we launched these. We grew rapidly and then Scotia relented. That index is now owned by FTSE TMX, I believe, but at the time it was Scotia. And they eventually gave us a bond index license. So we converted those really simple single bond ETFs into bond index ETFs. And at the same time, our American cousins, iShares in the U.S. launched the bond ETFs, including corporate bond ETFs, which we followed with in Canada soon after, and the revolution was on. Yeah, that's a great story, Jerry. The fixed income ETFs, and what you're alluding to was you kind of had to do steps to get into it. You couldn't just get into the bond universe or the entire diversified bond exposure. And you guys were really innovative in terms of identifying 
when you say a five-year and a 10-year, you had rolling bonds in there that just gave you exposure to five-year and 10-year. And because you got into that, you were able to then expand and go into the entire universe of fixed income opportunities. Yes. We would roll those bonds. We would call them the on-the-run bonds. When a new five-year bond would get issued, we'd sell the old one, buy the new one. So it was always oh. the most current five and 10-year. These really simple funds became dominant in their space. We're regularly first and second quartile performers because active management wasn't doing that well. And as a result, it kind of forced the market, the index provider market to come to us and give us the license. I think it's still a really interesting product development story. We hit this roadblock of not being able to get a product license. We kind of went around it with our own oh, absolutely. product strategy. You know, you can't pick up a newspaper on the weekend without seeing some article about a bond ETF you know, whether it's the Globe or the Financial Post or anywhere in the United States. And they're such major, major components of portfolios. That whole era that you were talking about, Jerry, the late 90s and the early double O's were fascinating because I recall prior to them just not having access to exchange-traded funds. And you and BGI revolutionized that entire initial first step. It was an amazing time. What were the biggest challenges when you think about in that first five years, biggest challenges that you and your organization and your team faced? First is we were really a small team. It was a breathless time. We were running flat out. We're still trying to run our institutional business, which had suffered in Canada because of the decline in popularity of indexing and trying to build our quantitative active business, which largely followed the index and with a few tweaks. So we had great challenges on the institutional side while trying to build up this new retail franchise where a lot of people either didn't understand ETFs and trust me, the bond ETFs were really hard to explain to people. (laughs) At the same time, retail distribution in Canada was still highly in the realm of brokers that receive fat trailer fees from the mutual funds or back-end load fees. And they weren't accustomed to facilitating investments by their clients and things which did not compensate the dealer. ETS really only thrived in retail in a fee-based environment between the advisor and the investor or with the do-it-yourself investor. So we needed to get the um, institutions, we needed to get them interested. We needed to get the trading desks accustomed to holding these things in inventory and being able to hedge them so they could be available for people, which was really hard for the bond ETS because Frequently, the equity trading desk that traded the ETF and the bond trading desk that traded the bonds run separate floors. I mean, just getting them together was hard. And then the <laughs> whole thing about how to convince a retail investors what these things were, how to use them, try to break down barriers one at a time to get past the paywall that many investors faced in their relationships with their advisors. So in doing all that with really a small team, you know, I said it was a breathless time. It really was. We ran flat out. And one thing is we all felt so committed and we felt so gratified that we were doing something we knew was just good for us to make money on. It, we knew it was changing investing for the better. Yeah. Look at bonds right now. There's over a trillion dollars US in bond ETS. That is saving bond investors collectively billions of dollars in fees. And it's changed how corporate credit gets traded as well. So it's just a massive revolutionary impact. And so we took a lot of pride in doing things that we knew were helping future investors. And it's always great to do well by doing good. We really felt that we were on a mission to do good things here. 
And thankfully, it was successful. And we made money from it too. Oh, absolutely. Exactly. It was a big success for investors, retail investors. And like you just said, right now, bonds ETF are really popular. But back then, did you ever think they would be so popular? Because if I'm not mistaken, inflows right now in bond ETF has surpassed equity inflows last year in 2019. So obviously, it's really popular right now. Did you guys think that the success would be as big as what we are seeing right now? Well, Ruben, I mentioned I didn't get a lot of support from yeah. that office on the bond ETF. So I kind of shuffled budget money around to be able to fund the initiative, Yeah, which would have gone really badly for me had they not worked. So I think when you push all your chips into the middle of the table, you probably have some unreasonable dreams. So I always actually dream they would become important and as important as equity. So, so part of me actually was hoping that this would happen. Did you think that you could have lost your job if this then worked out the way you guys were envisioning? Oh, absolutely. Like I said, <laughs> so it was a big fewer risk. Than a, fewer than a dozen of us worldwide that were informed we would make a lot of money if this did well, but we would not be employed if it didn't work well. <laughs> yeah, it was a leap. Uh, yeah, Concentrated the mind. Yeah. <laughs> so, Jerry, a couple last questions in that era, then we'll move forward and sort of what's happened in the last 10, 15 years. Back then, when you were really bringing the new suite of exchange-traded funds into the Canadian marketplace, occasionally BGI would do some roadshows and talk about merging of units from either the tips and the hips into the XIU. How did that go? How many people showed up to those events back then? Boy, those roadshows were fantastic. I saw some of the promotional material from those roadshows. There should be an ETF museum sometime. We display all this stuff. I'm trying to remember, Keith, even if I was at the Montreal meeting or not, but I think the crowds were generally between 30 and 60 people and a mix of do-it-yourself investors, brokers, advisors. Often, if it was a large advisory unit within a large national brokerage firm, it might be their product person for the office. Sometimes it would be one of the advisors themselves. And we'd get some institutional investors too. So it was a pretty eclectic group, which of course made the communication even more challenging because you're speaking to people with different levels of understanding. Yeah, you're right. Uh, the different levels of understanding was critical because back then I recall, you know, you could go to an ETF presentation, there'd be hedge fund managers in the room. There'd be institutional managers in the room who were using exchange-traded funds to equitize and to do various institutional strategies. There would be a few retail advisors, and then actually maybe a do-it-yourself investor. That's a really broad mix of individuals who come to learn about an investment solution. Right. And the do-it-yourself investor that actually showed up to this was actually pretty knowledgeable. Yep. Yep. I remember showing up at the one in Montreal with my colleagues, my, my former colleagues from PWL, and we were just amazed. Because for us, this was like, oh my God, this is going to change the world. We were so excited. We were using the old units and participation units. And when BGI came out with their series of strategies, we were like, oh, this is incredible. We were excited. We would go to the conference and we would find very few people there. I just recall going, but doesn't everybody know this is huge? Like, this is just enormous. Keith, at the time, there were so few people like you across the country. We knew every one of them. Like, <laughs> Keith, we knew you at PWL. And there was probably fewer than a dozen people across the country that were champions at your level. We knew every one of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So when you think back in the last 20 years, what do you think was the tipping point, Jerry, in terms of the tipping point for investor acceptance or sort of the quicker speed of adoption? You know, I think that the tipping points may have varied by type of instrument and by country. I think in the U.S., adaptation was a little more quick. I think they had made more of a transition to fee-based advice. I think they had, as we've talked about, Keith, more of a, they have a role there, a registered investment advisor, that the Canadian analog is uh, not that widespread. So you had these people with fiduciary responsibilities managing portfolios for investors in the U.S. So I think the infrastructure in the U.S. was more suited to retail take-up. And eventually, you know, you get things like the really massive advisory firms in the U.S., like Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley. Every once in a while, we learn, oh, they've decided as a head office, they're going to promote this nationally. It's a better business method. We would almost ring a bell when we'd hear that, right? Because we knew it would lead to a lot more growth. So that happened more in the U.S. than in Canada. I didn't mention in Canada, indexing was a bad word for a few years in the early aughts. But eventually, all of that turned around as you know, active management struggled throughout the aughts. And every time someone was disappointed with active management, they might switch to an ETF. They rarely switched out. So people may jettison their active manager, go to ETFs, someone that would then drift back into some active management, perhaps at the periphery, but there was a high retention. And gradually that just built up until assets got to more of a critical mass and they gathered its own momentum. And then I think in 2008 was a huge turning point. In the global financial crisis, ETFs proved their worth, both indexing did and ETFs, because a lot of people have said, oh, ETS will fail when there's chaotic trading conditions. Well, actually, we see some of those predictions even now, but there were a lot of predictions like that then, and they didn't fail. They traded well, and in fact, when the underlines had trouble trading, the better price discovery was to trade the ETF. And what I mean by that is, suppose in an index there's, I don't know, suppose there's 100 stocks in an index. On a chaotic trading day, 10 of them might not open, but the ETF would trade and it would actually have effectively applied prices for the 10 that didn't open because of order imbalances or something. So it actually became a better vehicle in chaotic markets than the underlying securities. So ETS proved their worth in 2008. And I think that really turned the corner going forward. And as they proved to be mainstream, it attracted all these new competitors that started adding wonderful new creative solutions, and that drew in more investors. It kind of fed on itself at that point. Yeah, you're raising a really good point. Following this story for many years, there's always been skeptics. They always launched their theories as to why it's not going to work. For example, people would say exchange, and Ruben and I have covered this in previous shows, exchange-traded funds that track an index will not do well in a bear market, and active management will shine in a bear market. And, you know, that hasn't proven to be the case in the last two or three significant recessions. And you're raising this issue with regards to there was always sort of individuals saying, well, they're not going to trade well in chaos and therefore you shouldn't trust them. And what you're talking about is they actually did trade well. They traded remarkably well. They did. That's especially true for bonds. (laughs) That argument I just (laughs) made, you could double it for bonds. The ETS traded better than the underlying. 
And back when we started, people also criticized the fact you could trade them. And people say, well, people will go crazy and day trade them and lose all their money. Well, you could day trade them. If you were that type, you could have been day trading securities too. The fact is ETS remain a superior buy and hold vehicle, which is you know, 95% of the usage of them. And I think ETS as a concept challenged people. So people wanted to attack the concept in many ways. And some of their arguments were weak. And you mentioned indexing and active management that the last few cycles, active management did not shine what it was supposed to have. But when you think about it, the index is what everyone owns. And the only way to beat the index is if someone's trailing it. And maybe back in the 60s or 70s, may have been a class of people who were dumb enough to always trail it. But every time you move another slice of dumb investors, maybe who switch to indexing, that's less and less available alpha or value add available for the active managers to exploit and take advantage of. Yeah, I just want to go back to something you mentioned, Jerry, about the ETF adoption, which was a bit faster in the US, maybe because of their registered investment advisor setup, which is more advanced compared to Canada. We all know that the ETF adoption is a bit slower in Canada, relatively speaking, to other regions of the world. Do you think that's the main reason or there is other reason that makes it a bit slower, the adoption of ETF for Canadian investors? Yeah, Ruben, it's a great question. And I think it is broader than that. I mentioned, you know, in the U.S., when we'd hear that one of the big, what they call them wirehouse firms and big national firms, would say, okay, we're endorsing ETFs as a business method for our advisors to use. We know those are big deals. And I think actually outside of the RIAs, I think just brokers, advisors in the U.S. switched earlier to a fee-based concept. Yeah. That may have been influenced by the presence of RIAs, but it's actually separate from it. So in most of the growth, I think, of the U.S. has happened at the brokerage firms themselves. And I think we saw initially really slow take up in Europe because European retail distribution, you know, looked like Canada. They're, they're like closed platforms. They were not open source platforms. So you could only buy the house's product. And there were high commission fees, trailing commissions and back end loads. Gradually, all of those went away in other countries, less so in Canada. And that's why Canada has the highest mutual fund fees in the world, because it's laden with high distribution costs. And it's been disappointingly slow progress in Canada on the regulatory front to make it easier for people to get access to ETS. You have a whole category of advisors who are mutual fund dealers that can't trade ETFs. That's the MFDA channel, even within the investment dealer channel or IROC. And I was actually the first non-industry chair of IROC. Even there, I I couldn't change this. Dependence in Canada on high trailing fees from mutual fund companies and even back-end loads has created so much inertia. And unfortunately, they haven't needed to change because no one else has changed in Canada. So I think that has slowed down progress here. So we can definitely make a relation between... uh the way the, the advisor are set up and the way they are compensated and the ETF progress in the past. But in general, in, in the world, we all know that, you know, the ETF industry, it's been growing uh, on average at 30% a year. So it is progressing. And in past shows, uh, Kit and I, we often refer the ETF explosion as a revolution. Does the term revolution resonate with you? Do you think we can define that as a revolution in the investment industry? No, Ruben. I think you can, and it's not because of the asset levels. 
I think it's because of how it's changed how people invest. Oh, yeah, definitely. So in bond ETFs, it actually changes how corporate credit trades. But you think about how it's allowed investors to invest. It's given investors back control of what they've, they're allocated to. Is it allowed them to access diversified pools, even in relatively niche areas? Like, suppose you think, I'm just so enamored of technology or biotech. You could buy a diversified ETF in that and, and have a tilt towards that in your portfolio that might be otherwise you know, more well-rounded. So it's given investors so much control to access diversified pools at low cost, easy convenience. And when we say trade any time of day, for most people, that doesn't mean, oh, we're going to buy at 9.36 and sell at 10.42. You know, it allows you to rebalance. I mean, suppose you decide, I'm going to switch from European to US exposure. You know, with mutual funds, you're getting end of day pricing in Europe and end of day pricing in the US. And those are five hours, six hours apart. And these days, I mean, intraday volatility can be high. I mean, the market could have gone up or down. It could trade the other way. But, you know, at 10.30 in the morning, you can sell your European ETF and buy your US ETF and match the pricing environment for the two. So it's removed all these frictions to investing. And because of that, that's why I think it's revolutionary. And it's those revolutions, I think, in turn, have led to the asset growth. Uh, I think the asset growth just reflects what it's the a consequence. The ETFs have provided. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Very interesting. So far in your background, there's something we haven't mentioned is that you founded in the past a fund, the Greening Canada Fund, which is carbon offset credit fund for Canadian companies who wanted to reduce their environmental impact. So there is a new trend now in ETF, which is uh, environmental, social, and governance in ETF, ESG ETF. They have experienced their biggest inflows in 2020 so far. So I would like to ask you, what do you think of ESG ETF and uh, where do you think this is going? Do you think they will keep progressing at the same pace in the future? I think they will, but I think the ETFs will change. I started the Greening Canada Fund in 2009, ran it until 2014. It was a way of accessing voluntary carbon offset credits to deliver to Canadian companies that want to become carbon neutral. Our two biggest clients were Bank of Montreal and TD Bank. Oh, wow. Yeah. We were really early, too early. But, you know, I, you may know by now that I like being early on innovations as opposed yeah. to late. <laughs> and I've been too early a few times, and we could talk about that. <laughs> but I'd rather be early than late, and once in a while you, you've got the right timing. I, I think the ESG ETS right now, in the goals of kind of standardizing things, they're kind of tilting towards companies with good ETF ratings or rankings, which are partly quantitative and partly qualitative. But, you know, Ruben, I think five years from now, my prediction and my hope, my hope is that we'll look back and say, probably 2020, we used some pretty naive ESG factors. We were just getting started. And just because someone has lower carbon intensity or may have some of the other factors that they use, including some governance factors, which are incredibly important, but even some of the other environmental factors that they use. They're they're really at a high level. They're probably not context-laden or context-adjusted. I think we'll actually evolve those factors. And maybe the funds may be the same. They may use the same 
infrastructure and architecture, but the ratings will be very different. The ratings will be more sophisticated. And I think we need that. I mean, what we're getting right now is just, you know, first level screening, which is, you know, useful and better than nothing, but not good enough in my view. I launched the Greening Canada Fund because I believe that financial instruments could lead us to make better environmental decisions. I still believe that passionately. So I'm delighted to see the growth in ESG ETFs, but we need to see them become a lot better to achieve this goal of having financial instruments improve our environmental performance. They need to be better. That's a great question, Ruben, and thank you for that response, Jerry, on ESGs. What else comes to mind for you, Jerry? How are things going to evolve in the next five or 10 years for the Canadian investor with regards to exchange-traded funds? Well, I think we'll probably see more innovation. I must tell you that it's even hard for me to keep up with all the different funds that are coming out now. And I used to know everyone in the ETF business. I know a fraction of them now because it's attracted so many people and so many firms. And I couldn't be prouder of the fact that there's a spirit of innovation in Canada to develop interesting ETFs to solve investor solutions. And I think we'll see more of that. We might see some consolidation because there's a lot of players right now. So I think you're going to see better choice for Canadians. And I think as size gets better and trading gets better, Canadians will feel more confident owning a Canadian ETF than a U.S. traded ETF where, you know, even now the Canadian ETF stats are skewed by the fact that many Canadians own ETFs that are traded in New York. So that I think if we just look at Canadian listed ETFs that understates Canadian ownership, we will likely attack different problems. One of the reasons in the 90s why I thought about bond ETFs was not just as a part of a portfolio, but I designed some fixed income ETFs that would have been more useful in what we might call decumulation scenarios. And I was you know, I wanted to do something about decumulation strategies back in the late 90s, also way too early. I think we'll probably see some good decumulation solutions emerging through ETFs. I hope we do. So, Jerry, just for our listeners, what do you mean by decumulation? By decumulation, I mean what happens in a person's retirement. You know, pre-retirement, we're in the business of accumulating assets so that we have sufficient financial assets to live and achieve other goals, including bequests, after we stop earning from our human capital, in other words, our cells, our own labor. When we depend only on our financial capital, we start living on that, and that's what we call decumulation because it's the opposite of accumulation. And the name of the game is to fund your goals in terms of living expenses, bequests, charitable giving, gifts to children, all while maintaining a sufficient amount of assets that you don't find yourself in a position of needing to cut back or all of a sudden uh, the fear of outliving your money. So decumulation is a significantly different way of looking at how you manage your money and some of your choices. Absolutely. And I think if we were to talk to the vast majority of investors and our clients, you know, most of them, their number one concern is to make sure that from a financial perspective, they have enough resources where they can lead a really, really nice lifestyle and make sure it's sustainable. And that all fits into the decumulation strategies that we're going to see more and more discussion around. That's right. I mean, the ideal combined 
path of strategies that your date of retirement, your asset mix doesn't change that day, but the things you start investing in and your asset mix will start evolving from that day forward to better match the fact that you're no longer accumulating, you're decumulating. Yes. Well, we spoke a lot about, you know, the past, Jerry, your background, and I sincerely, we sincerely thank you for sharing your story and inspiring uh, journey. But if we come back to the present now, if we talk about the present, Jerry, what projects are you most involved right now? One of the things I got involved with was launching one of the world's first carbon offset credit funds, which was a lot of fun. I think we achieved a lot. When was that, Jerry? It was 2009 to 2014. It was this fund that delivered carbon offset credits to clients to allow them to become carbon neutral. So we wound up retiring, uh, I think, 1.2 million tons of carbon at really low cost. And more importantly, all the carbon credits we sourced were Canadian, and most of them were from the public sector or nonprofit sector. So we're reinvesting back into those sectors. So for example, if a school board changed their boilers and got more energy efficient, we'd turn those into carbon credits for the energy efficiency and give them money. So it meant recycling money back into people that really needed it, like the school board. So we really felt good about achieving things on several fronts there. But like I said, it was really early. Another thing I did, I served on a number of boards. I was the first non-industry chair of the board of IROC, the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada, which is the self-regulator for investment dealers and equity marketplaces. And I've been on boards and investment committees and an advisor in Canada, the US and the UK, which I think has really added to my experience and breadth. And I'm on several boards and investment committees now. The most notable board I'm on right now is Healthcare of Ontario Pension Plan. It's one of Canada's largest pension plans. And And over the last 10 years, it's had one of the highest rates of return of the world from a really unique strategy. So you're definitely keeping yourself busy. <laughs> you're not 100% in retirement, keeping yourself sharp, definitely. So here's the tough thing. I try to aim for being half to two-thirds busy. Yeah. And that's really hard because you always undershoot or overshoot. and You can't really control when opportunities come up. The great thing about being retired is you can say no if you don't like the opportunity, but it's really hard to manage the time budget sometimes. And I'm sure some of your other clients face the same issue. So I'm either too busy or not busy enough and I'm always trying to aim for the middle. Yeah, but let me ask you that. If you could be involved in one last major innovation, like the ETF you experienced in the past, what would you wish it to be? I didn't need to be environmental or decumulation. Those are my two remaining passions. Yeah. Amazing. The whole environmental issue right now, it's very current. So definitely I could see that. I hope you will find a, an innovation or something, an opportunity so that you, you can be involved in, definitely. Well, this has been fantastic, Jerry. We're going to slowly wrap up here. Thank you so much for being on today's show. You are our very first guest. And it's so fitting because we're right in the middle of this sort of this discussion of indexing and ETFs and to have someone with your background on this show now is fantastic. So thank you. Well, it's been fun for me and I'm hoping I haven't uh, ruined the guest experience. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, you are really a great guest and it was a pleasure, Jerry, to interview you. 
Yep, thank you, Jerry. And when you think back now, Jerry, and you think about defining success, whether it be in work, life, or in general, how would you define success? Thank you for asking. You told me you were going to ask this question. I'm glad you did because it made me think about it, and that's important. <laughs> you know, I feel privileged to have worked with great people, to have found solutions that help people, and as near as I can figure, to have been a good colleague. I could not ask more for work. I found meaning and I enjoyed it. And I think the same goes for life. Find meaning, find good people to be with and live up to a standard of being a good person to others. That's it. Wow, that's pretty comprehensive. I like that. So thank you again, Jerry. This has been a wonderful show to our listeners. Be well, stay safe, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you, Jerry. It was a pleasure. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to the Empowered Investor Podcast, hosted by Keith Matthews. Please visit tma-invest.com to subscribe to this podcast, learn more about how his firm helps Canadian investors, or to request a complimentary copy of The Empowered Investor. Investments and investing strategies should be evaluated based on your own objectives. Listeners of this podcast should use their best judgment and consult a financial expert prior to making any investment decisions based on the information found in this podcast.